Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Celeste Muhammad about her story, Home, which appeared in issue 21 of The Common. Celeste Muhammad's debut novel and stories, Pleasant View, published this year. Her work has appeared in the New England Review, Lit Mag, Epiphany, and The Rumpus, among other places. She is the recipient of a 2018 Penn Robert J. Dow Short Story Prize for Emerging Writers, the 2019 Virginia Woolf Award for Short Fiction, and the 2017 John Gardner Memorial Prize for Fiction. A native of Trinidad and Tobago, Celeste graduated from Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts with an MFA in Creative Writing. Celeste Mohammed, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We always like to start by setting the scene for our conversation. Could you describe where you're living and calling from and what it's like there? Oh, sure. So uh, it's another bleak day here um, on the island of Trinidad, which is the larger of the two islands, Trinidad and Tobago, which make up this this country, my home. Um, it's the rainy season here. It rains for half the year. So, you know, uh, that's just 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 how it is. Um, I live just outside the capital city um, in a, I would say, a lush green valley. And um, one of the best things about living here, I get to wake up to like just the sound of so many birds, so many birds, especially mm-hmm. some there's some wild parrots that I, I tell everybody about. They they show up at dawn and they circle back around sunset and it's just, you know, like it's amazing. So yeah, that's where I am. Wow, that sounds very beautiful. I would love to hear a reading from your story. Would you read a few paragraphs for us? Sure, sure. I I have something right here for you. <laughs> so this is taken from home, which was published, as you said, in the common um, recently. And I'll just read a little bit. She slid her phone into the dashboard holster and swung out of the law firm's lot. Not even two streets away, it rang again, and she pressed the answer button without looking. Good God, woman. So I tell you, seven, you call back at 701, you serious? Silence. Then, Kimberly, spoken by her mother's glacial voice. Why haven't you called? Mom? She asked, her mind blank. Your father's been shot and you don't call? He's a politician, so I'm sure it's been on the news there. What? How? Her muscles seized. Last night, do you really not know what happened? A a robbery? Is he dead? Kimberly swerved the car and parked alongside the parliament building. A shadow in the guard's booth moved, and she imagined ski-masked bandits storming the cloth store, kicking in the office door, demanding Mr. H., her father, Open the safe. That could happen these days. Not in safe little Barbados, but back home, 
in bloody Trinidad. She pictured Mr. H trying to smooth talk while reaching for his gun, his giant hands being too clumsy in the end. The man was a troll, but she didn't want him dead. She leaned over the steering wheel and put her face within inches of the phone, as if that would help her comprehend what her mother was about to say. No, no, Mrs. H's voice got clippy. It was a young lady. He's at Santa Marta Private Hospital. Oh, Kimberly said, flopping back into the seat. A tiny smile played on her lips. Mr. H being shot by a bandit? That would have been cruel. Mr. H being grazed by some little whore? That was comeuppance. Well, good for her. I think I'll stop there. (laughs) Thank you so much for reading that. that. That was a great part to read. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Um, sure. Well, you know, each of the pieces, the nine stories in this in this collection, my collection, Pleasant View, they, they are discrete short stories in themselves, but I feel like it's best, they are best understood, and this one, Home, is best understood in its context within the book. So there's a, there's like this central unifying theme in the book uh, about the, I would say, the curse of islandhood. <laughs> um because islands make fantastic prisons. I think we know we know that, right? From Alcatraz <laughs> and everything, right? Yes. They are isolatory, you know, they separate you from the rest of the world physically as well as um psychologically, you know. So islands tend to be like fertile soil for the development of unique cultures and 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 mindsets and by imposing this vast physical border of the ocean, it you know it makes a it makes it very dangerous for someone to try to escape the island. But also, it imposes like like a psychological border as well that you just don't even bother to try. And so, this collection, I hope, explores that that. So, like in the first story in the collection, it explores that very literally, because we have someone trying to escape from our prison island, uh, our Alcatraz. But then the other stories, including this one home, try to approach that subject more obliquely. Um, You have folks trying to leave Trinidad. You have folks trying to leave the town of Pleasant View. Um, And Kimberly, in this story, she thinks she has escaped to another more accommodating island, Barbados. But she hasn't really escaped the island of her self-loathing. You know, that in itself is a is a is a prison. And she's been in it since childhood. And so the the story is about her being pushed to the edge, if you will, of, of, of that island of self-loathing and reaching a point where she is scared as she looks out into the, you know, into oblivion. But at the same time, she can finally acknowledge that she has to cross it. She Mm -hmm. has, you know, the work has to be done. She has to do that hard work of um, confronting her childhood and her past. So this story is part of your book, which is a novel in stories, as you said, um, which is all centered on a fictional town, Pleasant View. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always intrigued by a novel in stories. And it sounds like you always intended to write it that way. Is that the case? Or did you ever think it would be just a traditional novel or a traditional story collection? 
Right. So no, I didn't um, always intend it to be this okay. way. Um, this the collection started life as my thesis at for my MFA program mm-hmm. I was in, and at that time, I'm sure you you know. <laughs> You're just kind of writing to meet the demands of the program, you know, just yeah. just trying to to meet your deadlines. And so I had written six stories. And um, at the time of compiling my, my thesis, I sat with them and I noticed that they were unintentionally, unintentionally linked um, in theme. That same theme I just mentioned, you know, the curse of islandhood. And so I decided, you know what, if I really made an effort, I could probably pull these together, um, draw out one or two of the characters, write a couple more stories, and and actually turn this into not just a linked collection, but a novel in stories. So it took three more years from 2016 (laughs) to 2019, you know, and three more stories to be written. But by 2019, that's what I had. The novel and stories. That's really interesting. So did you work on this story while you were in your MFA program or is this one of the ones you wrote? Yeah, no, this, this did start, (laughs) had a very, I would say a very ignominious start because, um, like (laughs) I said, I, I was just writing whatever was at hand, whatever I was seeing around me in my day to day life. And so where I lived at the time, everyone in the building was involved in observing a very similar kind of roommate relationship as the one described in this story, right? So, yeah, so we were all watching and everybody, you know, was kind of, we have this word shoo-shooing. We were all whispering, you know, shoo-shooing about what is going on with these people. Um, and I, so I had written a very lighthearted, very humorous take on that situation. But then my mentor um, during the MFA program, he he read it and he said, you know, it's not bad, but it's not good either. It's not the best you can do. You have, you know, he's like, why don't you dig deeper and do what you usually do, Celeste? Why don't you try to um, empathize, you know, and get into the, 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 the mind of the characters? And so when I really sat down to do that, I felt a whole new wave of, feeling for Kimberly that changed the whole tone of the story from being humorous to being a a bit more, you know, deep. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, for our readers who, who may not have encountered your story yet, um, Kimberly is in a romantic relationship with her roommate, but sort of doesn't want to acknowledge it. Um, and I, I was thinking of something I read, which is you said that you wanted to really show sort of the darker side of island life, that it is beautiful and tropical and beachy, mm-hmm. but there's also, you know, a lot of misogyny and violence. There's political corruption. And and I feel like the tension in this story comes a lot from Kimberly's fear of, of the homophobia she sees in the culture and from her father specifically. Yes. Um, would you talk more about choosing to show that dark side of Trinidad or was that... It, is that just natural? Is that not even really a choice? <laughs> no, it, it is a choice because, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's a choice, but it's a choice based on some, in, you know, there's an internal and external aspect to my to my motivation and my choice in, in doing that. The internal, I think you, you might know James Baldwin is famous for saying, you know, he has this quote, I'm probably not remembering it wrong, but he says something <laughs> like, um, I love America 
um, more than any other country. And um, exactly because I love America, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually, right? <laughs> and I kind of, internally, that's kind of the motivation. I love my country. I love Trinidad and Tobago. But because I love Trinidad, I feel like there's a need locally and within the Caribbean region to have deeper discussions about the things you just mentioned, you know, um, certain pathologies, which we've come to accept as normal, uh, certain vestiges of slavery, indentureship, colonialism, all the things that, you know, we struggle with on a day-to-day basis, but we don't talk about. So that's internally. But then externally, I am... I'm writing something for the Amherst College Solidarity Book Project. Okay. And um, what I'm actually writing about is about my ex- external motiv- motivation, which is um, Chimamanda Adichie talks about the single story, but she talks about it in relation to Africa. You know, how the single story of Africa being this dark continent of catastrophe has only ever, you know, it's it's the pervasive narrative and it casts Africans in a particular light, you know, that they're just objects of pity and not complete human beings, right? And I have always felt and been, been irritated by the single story of Caribbean people, mm-hmm. which is the sort of the inverse of the African story in that usually portrayals of Caribbean-ness and Caribbean people show us as being um, lightweights, happy-go-lucky, sun-si-san, no real problems, no real emotions, really, apart from exotic sexuality or something. You know, uh, it's almost as if Carib- in the diaspora, Caribbean equals blackness light. You know? Interesting, yeah. So for me, I feel like a lot of times um, that single story encourages North Americans to approach Caribbean people and, and to approach me, thinking that they know me with hmm. expectations which are really based on false intimacy. You know, the intimacy that comes from that 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 incomplete story. So I know this is all very convoluted and heavy, but I just felt like I I needed to show we are real people, we have real problems, and our problems are no less um, substantial or important than yours. And you can't fully appreciate our triumphs in, in the realm of, of music, you know, art, whatever, culture. Like you can't fully appreciate us unless you understand our trials. Yeah. Th- thank you so much for going so deeply in on that question because I think that was, that was really interesting and illuminating, especially, you know, considering like why you would feel the need to, sh- to show both sides of it. And I think it's yeah, very important work to do. In this story, quite a bit of the dialogue is is written in Patois. And from what I've read, it seems like that's true for for, for the book as a whole. Did you debate using Patois or was that just um, sort of the normal mode for this work and these characters? Was there any pushback from editors or industry people? Right. Well, I would say in the the earliest iteration, back in, in my MFA days, I did struggle. I did struggle with whether or not to use Patwa, whether or not to write in Patwa, but mm-hmm. it was more of a personal struggle because you want to be read. You want to be read widely, um, you know, and I, I, at that point, I wasn't sure if writing in Patwa would sort of restrict my audience, but 
The good thing about an MFA is that it gives you time to figure things out. (laughs) (laughs) So I had like two and a half years to figure out, you know, how I was going to approach it. And, um, but by the time I wrote my thesis, I was pretty clear that there was no way I could authentically convey, um, these characters or the setting of, of, of Trinidad without writing in a mix of, of Patois and, um, standard English, because, they're sort of like, in this part of the world, as I'm sure in other places, there's like what we call a hierarchy of registers, beginning with standard English at the at the highest point and then moving down, as some people would say, into, you know, <laughs> the various patois and all the way down to what might be unintelligible to someone who lives elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the logistics would be for each story, I had to kind of determine where on that hierarchy of registers, where on that continuum is my character. So like Kimberly is would normally be, I guess, at the, at the top, she'd be speaking standard English, but she would slide into, you know, um, a form of patois whenever she needed to. And similarly, the her, her roommate, Rachel, She's not Trini, she's Barbadian, but they have their own patois, their own Creole. And so same same thing, she would probably speak standard English, but slide into her Barbadian uh, Creole in in moments of great emotion or for emphasis, you know, code switching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was always the challenge with each story, locating the character or characters on that continuum of, of registers and uh, figuring out how to allow them to do what they would do in real life, which is code switch without throwing off the reader. Yeah, that's really interesting. Cause uh, you know, I feel like in the last couple of years, uh, writing, writing speech like with a dialect or with an accent has sort mm-hmm. of, um, gone out of fashion. Um, which I think was mostly because white people weren't doing it very authentically. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't pretend that's a bad thing, yes. <laughs> but that's gone. But um, I definitely, you know, hearing you say that, it, it makes sense that it's not just authentic to your experience, but like authentic to the different moments that your characters are in and, and, and how they would interact. Exactly. And, and mm-hmm. even adds add something to the character and the situations. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So this story is, is set in Barbados, and that's where Rachel, the roommate, is from, as you said. And Kimberly is from Trinidad, but her father is Syrian. Mm-hmm. And it just it made me think, I read an interview with, that you did with the Rumpus, and you called Trinidad a rainbow country. Can you talk more about how that idea influenced the characters that ended up in Pleasant View? Sure. Well, you know, as I as I started off saying, we have all these birds here. <laughs> like, it's as with birds, so with people in Trinidad. We have such a mix of... Uh, different creeds, races, religions, all coming together and sort of blending um, into a melange of, you know, stuff. Um, <laughs> and that is, yes, that is what informs my my writing because I feel like it's kind of impossible to sit here and write about here and not face those things head on, face some of the conflicts um, that naturally come when you have different cultures kind of butting up against each other, you know? Um, so Trinidad is one of those places. If, if you have any idea where we are on a map, it's sort of, it was sort of destined that it would be like this because we are the first island off of South America, right. right? So we're actually closer to Venezuela 
than we are. Trinidad is closer to Venezuela, I am told, than it is to Tobago. <laughs> oh wow! You know, it's it's we're really really close to the Spanish mainland, as 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 it used to be called. And we, so if you want to leave South America, you would have to either come in this direction or go through uh, Panama, mm-hmm. right? And so we would, we kind of directly across from Africa as well. So we just turned out to be this hub for immigration. You know, for you, you first you had, of course, the enslaved African peoples and after the emancipation of slavery, we didn't have enough labor. So they brought uh, Chinese, they brought Portuguese, they brought indentured Indian laborers, and people just kept coming, you know, mm-hmm. um, using, intending to use Trinidad as a jumping off point to go to, let's say, America or to go somewhere else, but staying, you know. And um, I feel like that's, all of that is there in the book. So you have Chinese, Syrian, you have Indians, you have all of those races in the book. And you you have, um, the British were really, really good at one thing, <laughs> divide and rule, you know? Yeah. And and we're still living that out today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are there uh, tensions in the book that sort of come from that sort of melting pot situation where there's so many different racial identities and ethnic identities. Yeah, of course. I mean, and it's so, sometimes it's so, I try not to write very heavy handedly about it because Mm -hmm. in ordinary Trinidad life, it is so subtle sometimes. And sometimes just even when it's not subtle, it's accepted as normal. The tension between Indians and Africans, people of Indian descent and African descent, um, that tension will always be there because it's almost like a 50-50 split demographically. Mm-hmm. And so the struggle for political power, you know, it's a cycle. It's, it's, it, the struggle for political power leads to this kind of tribal struggle. And so it's there in the book. Um, Jagroop is, is Indian. He's an Indian character. And um, most of the other characters are... are of African descent, and then, well, Mr. H is Syrian. And again, that's another area of conflict because the Syrians didn't come as laborers. They came on their own in the early part of the 20th century uh, as immigrants, you know, fleeing the situation in the Middle East. And um, they started off life as itinerant, like merchants with little suitcases going door to door. Mm -hmm. But within the course of, like, just one century, they are now uh, probably the, the most wealthy and most powerful uh, ethnic group in the country. Wow. And that is a source of a lot of conflict. I mean, they are referred to locally as the 1%. And I mean, that speaks volumes, right? Right. So that is there in the book as well, in, in, the, in the form of Mr. H and his family. So, yeah. That's really interesting. I always, you know, obviously any sort of racial or ethnic tension is, is not, is not a good thing, but I think it's, it's so important for Americans, especially to read mm-hmm. about those sort of complexities and, and, the, and nuance, because I think, in, unfortunately in America, the discussion about racial tensions is like whatever the opposite of nuanced is. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have any nuance yeah. here for that. Yeah. So it, it is always really interesting to hear about and, how and- 
And I would say too, you have those groups, discrete groups or whatever, but then you have so many of us who are mixed, like myself, Mm -hmm. you know, so kind of caught in the middle and and just needing to, to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes the discourse doesn't have any space for that sort of mixed experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this story is is really a, a pleasure to read. The scenes are very alive and real, uh, like the one that you read. And the story sort of spools out through these scenes, Kimberly's backstory. It's very nicely paced and arranged. Um, and there's that that um, big tension throughout that I talked about earlier. Would you tell us a little bit about the process of revising this story or, or, or just your revision process in general? Like how, how different is a, is a final draft from a first draft? Well, um, this story was hell on wheels to read. <laughs> because I felt so insecure about so many things. I knew the story that I wanted to tell. But in some ways, it involved several others. So Kimberly, in one sense, is an other in, in that she... I have never been, in, you know, I've never been a Syrian lesbian so I, I, or closeted lesbian or, so I have no, there's so many things there that I I didn't want to offend um, or to incorrectly represent or create a caricature. Mm -hmm. And also Rachel is another, she's a Barbadian, um, half white Barbadian person of means who's decided to kind of just, you know, uh, flunk through life in a way mm-hmm. but you know so there were so many others in in this story that I really was concerned to to show show them respectfully and authentically and so it, it meant I kept revising and revising and revising mm-hmm. and I would have my friends in Barbados look at Rachel's dialogue and I would have my friends who are gay um yeah. look at look at <laughs> and I would go back and forth and I would change the the voice I would change the I the tense, I would change, you know. So eventually I I put all those technical considerations aside and I kind of just said, Celeste, write from the emotion of what I wanted to convey and just write from wherever you feel the emotion strongest. And, and then I did. And I still wasn't convinced that I had done a, a, a perfect job, but then I'm never convinced. So I just <laughs> kind of gave up. <laughs> and I was like, look, you know, and that's something you hear. You always hear people say that a work of art is never finished. It is only ever abandoned. And <laughs> yeah. I feel like, yeah, this 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 book was at some point I just had to let go and say that's it. But as regards revising, um, I feel like one of the, the only advice I could give is if somebody were to ask me is that the key to revision is really there in the etymology of the word. You have to see again or see afresh. And I find with me, sometimes I get trapped in the text mm-hmm. I have already produced. And I'm so trapped in this text that I'm having trouble seeing afresh, you know? Um, and in those times, you know, whenever I feel like that, I feel just completely trapped. I, I just... I need to put it down for a while, just not even touch it, and um, maybe months at a time even, and then come back to it. So I would say that that's my, that is my process for revision. I try every time I come to the, the story to see, to test myself to see, am I looking at this afresh? Am I looking at this as if I've never read it before? Am I looking at this as a reader? 
And if I feel I can't, and I only find myself changing commas and semicolons and stuff, then I, I probably need to put this down for a while. while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. I think it, it, people never want to hear it, but time is like the most essential item for, for revision, like time to to be able to come to something with fresh eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you wrote an essay for the common called split me in two. Uh, we published it on inauguration day this past January. Um, sure. and it's, it's about many different things, but the, the jumping off point is this term dogla, a West Indian word for, for a person who's half Indian and half black, mm-hmm. um, which is a background that you share with, with our now vice president. Um, yes. it is such a fantastic essay. I, I just loved rereading it before, before we talked today. And, and I really hope anyone who hasn't read it yet will seek it out. Um, there's so much complexity about, you know, the whys and hows of naming things, how we, how we name different heritages, heritages, mm-hmm. heritages. um, yes. and, and, and sort of making distinctions, like, like you were saying, these sort of nuanced distinctions between different ethnicities, um, which, which aren't necessarily present in America. And you cover so much fascinating history in the West Indies, which I think we've talked a little bit about today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also very personal. I feel like you in the essay share this affinity with the vice president based on this shared heritage. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell us more just about writing this essay, how it came together, um, what inspired you to write it? You know, for me, I'm, I don't see myself as an essayist. I really don't. Uh, my agent would like me to write more essays, but I don't <laughs> see myself as an essayist. You know, I, something has to move me emotionally for me to sit down and write an essay. And it has to be something that I feel I cannot sufficiently or adequately treat with in the form of fiction, you know? Mm-hmm. So for the, for this, I was very much everybody in the Caribbean who was very much invested in the results of the U S <laughs> election. And, um, as you know, it was a cliffhanger for a while there. <laughs> and, <laughs> And um, then we heard the good news and, and, and we, well, for us in the Caribbean, it, it was good news and we celebrated and so, and then, you know, in the quiet that followed the storm, I just decided to interrogate myself as to why I felt so happy mm-hmm. and why I felt so emotionally um, involved or invested or whatever. And the truth is I there's like a woman (laughs) and a woman like me in many ways that she, you know, she's a lawyer. She's, uh, she's mixed race, Indian mother and a father of mixed, her father's obviously of mixed uh, black and and European heritage Mm -hmm. and, you know, Caribbean roots. There was so much of me on the stage, you know, (laughs) being sworn in. Oh, that's so nice or about to be sworn in rather. So I just sat with that and I was like, listen, I, I feel like I need to write something about this. And I, and I did. And I, it took a couple back, back and forth turns, <laughs> you know, between myself and your managing editor. But um, in the end, I'm satisfied with that. I've said what I wanted to say about, about that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. It, it does a lot. It's doing a lot of different things. It's doing a lot of work, and I, yeah, I find it to be hugely successful. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about it. Um, if our listeners want to seek out more West Indian writers and authors, do you have any book recommendations for them or story recommendations? What should we be reading besides Pleasant View, of course? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Pleasant View. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> but. 
Uh, right now, I can tell you right now on my to-read list um, is Lauren Frances Sharma, who is a Trinidadian of Trinidadian heritage, but she's she lives in America. Uh, her book, The Book of the Little Axe, which is, yeah, I have it. I'm, I just have to sit down and read it. <laughs> then we have uh, the other book on my on my shelf right now is Andre Bagu, B-A-G-O-O. He is a local poet and essayist. And so his book, The Undiscovered Country, um, I think it won it won an award earlier this year or last year, or whatever, but it's a book of essays and I, I've been meaning to read that. Of course, um, internationally, the UK has always been a, a home for Caribbean literature. So you have Claire Adam with Golden Child, Ingrid Passard, Love After Love, Monique Roffey, uh, the Mermaid of Black Conk. They are based in the UK, but again, of Trinidadian heritage, and they, they're doing quite well. But if you if you want to read something, you know, that by somebody who's actually seated here, um, apart from myself, I would say Lisa Allen Agostini. She has a young adult novel called Home Home, which is kind of in the vein of what this story is about it's 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 about um someone struggling with some of the same issues that Kimberly struggles with in this story that's great thank you so much for the reading list I'm going to add it to the show notes <laughs> so our readers okay. can get reading uh okay so one last question uh is always what are you working on now and what what's next what should we look for what am I working on now <laughs> well Honestly, I had no idea that putting out a book involves so much non <laughs> non related to writing work, you know. Yeah. So there's always something to do regarding book promotion, of course, which takes mm-hmm. up a, a chunk of my time, but um I am working on a short story for an an anthology that I'm supposed to be contributing to. I finished one earlier this year and now I'm working on another story. Um then I have a couple of children's books on my on my desk that I'm working on. Awesome. And I am doing all of this work to kind of buy some time before I go back to my novel. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's really good to hear. Yeah, you definitely also deserve a break having just put out a, a, a new book. <laughs> yes. You don't yes. always have to be working on the next thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it's, I'm not... I'm not writing as much or mm-hmm. as I would like to be writing because you know writers. I I would much prefer to just go back into my little hole and with my mm-hmm. keyboard and just yeah only not do have that to deal. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Celeste Mohammed, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. Thank you for having me. It is it's really nice to have an an avenue and an opportunity opportunity to say these things. You know, great. I'm so glad we could be that. Listeners, you can read Celeste's story home and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.